Hi, coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang, coming up with Subversity. Today is Memorial Day, um, quiet in the station. Um, people are enjoying a day off. And actually, Memorial Day was uh, created by legislation that actually said it was supposed to celebrate peace. And of course, we haven't had peace for the you know decades since that law was enacted uh, to uh, commemorate uh, or to um, observe Memorial Day. And Memorial Day, this this Memorial Day was, of course, the uh, a day when Israel attacked uh, peace-loving peace activists um, on a mission to deliver uh, supplies to the embargoed Gaza Strip, and uh, Israel sent its military in and killed uh, maybe a dozen or more uh, peace activists over the weekend. And so we're going to cover this uh, and look back at the U.S.-Palestinian uh, issue and U.S.-Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, and uh, first we're going to be looking at some news coverage on this uh, horrific event that uh, has just occurred as we speak. And we still don't know how many people were killed. Um, we still don't know if uh, there's more people killed, although initial um, accounts indicate that maybe up to 15 or more people were killed. Uh, and we'll bring you some background information on this, um, this uh, issue that's going on as we, um, as we do this show. And right now in Los Angeles, outside the Israeli embassy, there are people protesting this uh, massacre by Israeli forces uh, in international waters, which would make it uh, international crime, I would think. Um, so what is this uh, flotilla that was attacked? Uh, we, we can get some background information. Uh, from a Q&A that was posted, that has been posted on the Guardian website, the British uh, left-wing uh, newspaper Guardian. Uh, they have a Q&A called the Gaza Freedom Flotilla. And uh, its subtitle is, What Were the Flotilla's Goals? And Did Israel Violate International Law? Uh, so what was the aim of the Gaza Freedom Flotilla? Um, according to The Guardian, it says the Free Gaza Movement says it was intended to deliver aid to Gaza to get around the Israeli blockade and to raise international awareness about the prison-like closure of the Gaza Strip and pressure, pressure the international community to review its sanctions policy and end its support for continued Israeli occupation. That movement, the movement, is an international coalition 
of pro-Palestinian human rights organizations and activists. It has been endorsed by Desmond Tutu and Noam Chomsky and counts on the support of a number of Jewish groups that campaign for the rights of Palestinians. And today in Israel, there have been also demonstrations against the government's um, massacre. However, Israeli Deputy Foreign Minister Danny Ayalon uh, said, according to the Guardian Q&A, a quote, the armada of hate and violence in support of the Hamas terror organization was a premeditated and outrageous provo- provocation. The organizers are well known for their ties to global jihad, al-Qaeda and Hamas. They have a history of arms smuggling and deadly terror. On board the ship, we found weapons that were prepared in advance and used against our forces. The organizers' intent was violent, their method was violent, and unfortunately the results were violent. And Israel has singled out the Turkish-based Isani Yadim Vakfi, or IHH, Humanitarian Relief Fund, as a radical Islamic organization. So that's typical of the response of state terrorists to blame it on um, terrorism of these humanitarian groups, uh, so-called terrorism uh, ties or terrorist ties. What has been the impact of the blockade on Gaza? Uh, asked the Guardian. It has affected everything from sanitation to schools, agriculture to health care, unemployment has soared, and blackouts have become common. UN statistics show that Around 70% of Gazans live in less than live on less than one dollar a day. 75% rely on food aid, and 60% have no daily access to water. Uh, humanitarian aid is, in theory, allowed in, but UN agencies and charities claim that the Israelis have banned any items that are humanitarian in nature, but can but could be put to alternative use. Items said to face delays getting into Gaza include shelter kits, health and pediatric hygiene kits, bedding, kitchen utensils, school textbooks, and uh, stationery. The World Bank estimates that 80% of Gaza's imports are smuggled in by tunnel. The goods which are taxed by Hamas attract inflated prices that are out of the reach of most ordinary residents. Israel says the objective of the blockade is to hold Hamas responsible, hold Hamas responsible and accountable uh, for rocket attacks on Israeli territory. It also wants to pressure the group to release Jilad Shalit, um, who's an Israeli soldier held captive for four years. Unfortunately, its goal to, is to bring down Hamas, which it views as a terrorist organization. The government hopes to weaken Hamas by containing its ability to govern. Independent observers say this is not working. John Holmes, the UN Emergency Relief Coordinator, has described the blockade as collective punishment of the civilian population of the Gaza Strip. Um, was this Israeli action legal? asked the Guardian in this Q&A um, in um, 
the paper uh, Monday, uh, dated today. Uh, Israel has had vowed to block the flotilla from reaching Gaza, accusing the organizations of embarking on an act of provocation against the Israeli military and claiming its entry into the 20-mile, 20-nautical-mile closure of the Sea of Gaza, Sea of Gaza would amount to a violation of international law. Um, but there is mounting criticism that Israel breached international standards and human rights law through its use of uh, armed force. International human rights law protects the right to life, of course, and the UN has strict guidelines on the response by military and police in law enforcement situations. The use of violence is prohibited unless it is strictly necessary, and the use of lethal force can only be justified in self-defense or to protect life. Human Rights Watch says, We are calling for credible and partial full um, investigation of the incident uh, by the Israeli authorities. Uh, Israeli spokespeople have insisted the attack was an act of self-defense, but international law also argues, also requires that any use of force is proportionate. Uh, questions have also been raised about the violation of international maritime law by Israel after reports that the militia was around 80 miles from Gaza's coast when Israeli commandos boarded. The Israeli human rights group, Btem Salem, uh, BT Salem, uh, said that uh, an independent and effective investigation conducted by non-military officers need to ask whether the army used proportionate force, whether the forces were trained to cope with this kind of event, whether they were correctly equipped, what open fire regulations were given to the soldiers, and whether alternative options were considered. Uh, what are the likely political repercussions, asked the Guardian newspaper. Uh, Proximity talks between Israel and Western-backed Palestinian Authority resumed this month, but there is little expectation of any meaningful progress. The authority is at odds with the Islamists of Hamas, who control the Gaza Strip. But Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, angrily condemned Israel's massacre. Uh, is international is uh, a reaction to Israel may pro- provoke a rethink of policy. Uh, of shunning Hamas. Um, today's events quickly prompted calls for an easing or lifting of the blockade of Gaza. Israel said it wants peace and will continue to seek a solution through um, negotiations. So that's the um, Q&A that has appeared in uh, today's edition of The Guardian, a British newspaper. And uh, the news is still emerging about the number of people killed and who were killed in this attack on a peace mission that was trying to provide supplies to the blockaded Gaza Strip. Um, protests have emerged around the world as the day unfolds and uh, including one in Los Angeles against the Israeli, uh, outside the Israeli embassy uh, or consulate. And um, we'll...
be covering this uh, probably next week also as we hear more of the facts coming out of this uh, uh, horrific incident. And um, the... Uh, the elders, the group that of, of uh, Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize winners um, that were set up uh, by Nelson Mandela, uh, which happened to be meeting in South Africa, have also issued a statement uh, condemning this uh, outrage. We'll be, uh, are you listening to uh, Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine? We'll be... Um, airing a short um, news account of uh, an earlier uh, uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict issue um, over settlements on the West Bank, Um, not on the Gaza Strip, but on the West Bank, um, shortly. And that's from a program that we often air. Uh, It's material on the show and on we're happy to air the um this material on uh this program on the um on the program uh that covered the uh um the sediments on uh in the um West Bank and we'll go to that program that uh, was produced at the end of the last year. Uh, the title of the program is Settlers or Meddlers, A Divided Palestine. We'll go to that program right now. This week on Making Contact. The idea is to cut up the Palestinian territories into little cantons so they can't communicate and can't do anything. If I talk about uh, transferring Arabs, then that's called racism. When they talk about expelling me, that's considered a move in the right direction for peace. And I don't buy that. Jewish settlers have forcibly expanded their territory, closed Palestinian shops, and expelled residents from their homes. After initially calling for a freeze on such settlements, the Obama administration has changed course, and the prospects for Israeli-Palestinian peace have dimmed. On this edition, producer Reese Ehrlich takes us from the Jewish settlements of Hebron to the streets of Ramallah. I'm Tina Rubio, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. I jump on an early morning bus leaving the Jerusalem bus station bound for Hebron. It's been a flashpoint in Israeli politics for over 30 years and is a good place to understand the country's fierce nationalism. The road to Hebron, for the exclusive use of Israelis, is like a rural American freeway, clean, smooth, and with little traffic. At one point, it narrows to two lanes and passes through a Palestinian village with crumbling homes and gravel roads. This is the modern West Bank. Israeli settlers travel on segregated roads to segregated communities and rarely see Palestinians. Palestinians are segregated in their villages and cities, surrounded by concertina wire, a wall, and Israeli military checkpoints. 
I wanted to find out how this all came to pass, so I went to Hebron, where 90 Israeli families have set up homes protected by 2,000 soldiers. My name is David Wilder. I'm a spokesperson for the Jewish community here in Hebron. I grew up in New Jersey. I've been in Israel for 35 years, and I've been in this area since 1981. The Hebron settlements have been controversial for many years. Under international law, an occupying power can't settle civilians in conquered Palestinian territory. Wilder argues that international law is irrelevant here, because Hebron, along with the entire West Bank and Gaza, are not occupied. They've always belonged to the Jews. Please come on in. We walk into a restored synagogue in Hebron's old city. Wilder cites examples of Jews buying land and setting up temples here in the 1500s. He claims Jews were always oppressed by Muslims. When the Jews came here in 1540, of course they needed a place to pray. Um, now the second holiest site to the Jewish people in all the world is just down the street, uh, the tomb of the patriarchs uh, where Abraham and Sarah buried. But at that time, that was off limits. For 700 years, Jews and Christians couldn't go in there. Uh, the Muslims held that it was a mosque and only Muslims could pray there. So the Jews couldn't pray there and they built here a synagogue um, <clears throat> in, in 1540. And this served as a center for not only for prayer, but for, uh, for Bible study for hundreds of years. Are you, are you Jewish? I am. You are Jewish? Yes. So come for a second. But this Torah scroll, for instance, is very, very old. It's written on deer skin. It's very, very beautiful. It was, it was written hundreds of years ago. We're not exactly sure where this one was written. There's another one. Close this for In Wilder's view, Jews have been the victims of Arab oppression for thousands of years. That only changed, he says, when Israel seized the West Bank from Jordan after the 1967 war. In 1967, where we're standing right now inside the synagogue, there was a sheep sty and there were goats here and sheep and there was a public bathroom and a dump. There was nothing left of the synagogue. The synagogue had been totally destroyed. So today we, uh, what we're standing in is a totally rebuilt, renovated uh, synagogue, which is almost identical to the, the, the building that had been here that had been destroyed. Did you want to drive somewhere? Yeah, well, we'll, yeah, well let's get in the car here. All right. You mentioned this was a former market, is that what... Uh... Okay, so let's talk about this area out here. I'll stop here for a second. Where can we stop? Let's stop over here. According to the Hebron settlers' worldview, Jews have lived almost continuously in Hebron since the biblical time of Abraham. Jews purchased land here and set up temples. In 1929, the Arabs attacked the small Jewish community of Hebron and drove them out, murdering and injuring many. The Jews then returned triumphantly after the 1967 war. Palestinians have clashed with the settlers ever since. In the early 60s, the Arabs built here on this property a fruit and vegetable market. Uh, this whole area was the wholesale market, on the other side was the retail market, and this was, uh, the Israeli government left it open. The army started to close it for security reasons going through the middle, late 1990s into the early 2000s. We moved in, and then we moved out, and we moved back in, and they threw us out. We're hoping at one point, at some point, we'll be able to move back in. We want to uh, move back into this old Jewish property. You mean from, based on the 1811 purchase? Is that going from then up through, I mean, you know, there, were, there was Jewish property here. 
But Wilder's narrative leaves out a few salient details. Yes, Jews lived as a minority in Hebron and other parts of modern-day Israel, but Arabs constituted the large majority for centuries. Palestinians argue that just because Jews established a small community in Hebron starting in the 1800s, it's hardly justification for settlers seizing Palestinian land today. We get back into his car and drive up a hill that overlooks the city center. Come. In the 1990s, Jewish residents expanded their settlement by moving small mobile homes onto this hill. It's a small cluster of apartments and caravans in the middle of a Palestinian neighborhood. Since Jews had lived here in biblical times, they argued, they had a right to live here today. It was an illegal expansion at the time, but the Israeli government eventually sanctioned it. So where are we now? Yeah, yeah, come, we'll go over here. Yeah. So roughly how many people live in this uh, little compound here? In this neighborhood we have, I don't know, 17 or 18 families. Those families live surrounded on one side by concertina wire. Only Jews are allowed to live here. I noticed that uh, you carry a sidearm also. Is that a Glock? Yeah, you've got good eyes. <laughs> it's a good pistol. <laughs> good I hope so. I, I, that's what they say. I mean, altogether in Hebron today there are, I don't know, somewhere around 90 families. We're up on the hill now, right? That's so correct. This, these 90 families are surrounded by Palestinians. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. So is this a double fence? I'm trying to see this. what's in front of us. Is that? Yeah. Well, what are, there's some fencing here. There's some concertina wire. This is the division between the community here and oh, the... We can go down around. This is an Arab house over here. I don't think he's living there right now, but the Arab house is over here and going back. The army puts uh, barbed wire up for uh, security reasons. This all-Jewish enclave is protected by 2,000 Israeli soldiers, as are all the settlers of Hebron. It's a precarious life for Israelis, who are surrounded by Palestinians who believe their land is being stolen. It's even more precarious for Palestinians, who are confronted by angry and armed settlers. For a different perspective on Hebron, I went to visit a leading human rights advocate in the West Bank city of Ramallah. The office of Shawan Jabarin sits on a busy Ramallah street. He's director of the Al-Haq Human Rights Organization. Jabarin grew up in a Palestinian village next to Hebron and has an intimate knowledge of that conflict. I think the most extremist uh, settlers uh, now they are living in Hebron, most of them from uh, New York and from the U.S., unfortunately. This is the reality. I asked Jabarin to respond to the views expressed by the Hebron settlers. For example, hadn't the settlers legally bought Palestinian land? Even if it's happened like that, it's illegal under the international law because the Israeli, as an occupying power, it's uh, prohibited for them to transfer their civilian to the occupied territory. More than that, the Israeli civil administration, it's like a facilitator for the uh, settlers and the settlements. And they put pressure on people, you know, and they use different means, you know, to trap them, to sell or something. But it's not that case, you know. If they bought, maybe they bought uh, one dunam here or there. Jabarin explains that the settlers might buy a few dunams or fractions of an acre or simply illegally lay claim to a building. The settlers always justify their actions by arguing Jews had owned the land hundreds or even thousands of years ago. 
The Israeli courts almost always uphold the settlers' land claims and offer no protection for Palestinians, Jabarin says. So Palestinians inevitably come into conflict with the settlers, sometimes with nonviolent demonstrations, sometimes with violent confrontation. Then, says Jabarin, the Israeli army expels large numbers of Palestinians from their homes, saying they pose a security threat. They uh, evicted most of the Palestinians in that area uh, directly and indirectly, you know, by put pressure on uh, them and on their life, you know, to make their life impossible. Peoples, they left that area, but these days, you know, Palestinians, they try to go back. Uh, the Palestinians, they can't use uh, specific roads, for instance. It's forbidden, you know, for them. Sometimes, you know, if you want to reach 50 meters, you know, to reach your house in 50 meters, they push you uh, around to you to go, for instance, two, three kilometers to reach that house. They attacked Palestinians, they uh, stoned them, uh, they uh, broke in and they damaged and destroyed their properties. Even soldiers sometimes, you know, they helped them. Attacking, you know, uh, Palestinians, different, they use different means of that, sometimes shooting against them. Jabarin concedes that some Palestinians have violently attacked settlers, particularly during the Second Intifada, an uprising that lasted from 2000 to 2004. Some Palestinians stabbed, shot, or even threw acid at settlers. But, he says, that doesn't justify permanently closing stores and expelling people who had nothing to do with the crimes. Some incidents happened like that. We know, but uh, the Israeli, they react, you know, in all the residential areas by attacking with the heavy guns indiscriminately. They shot against Palestinians just to punish all the civilians in that area, not for uh, against the target a place or a specific place. No, they indiscriminately. And some of the soldiers, they confessed that, you know, and they said that, I think, to the movement here called uh, Breaking the Silence. They told them that, uh, their officers told them to shoot indiscriminately, and it was like a game, you know, playing with people's life. Chabarin says his group strongly opposes Palestinian suicide bombers or Hamas firing rockets at Israeli civilians. As a human rights organization, we said that clearly we are against any incidents or any targeting of civilians, if it's uh, Israelis, if they are Israelis, or uh, Palestinian civilians. Jabarin says international law prohibits collective punishment of civilian populations, such as the indiscriminate use of deadly weapons. The Israelis, he argues, violate those laws. They use the security to justify their uh, crimes. This is uh, security, it has a limit time, even if it's, there is, uh, for instance, if there is a security necessity uh, or military necessity, uh, it's not uh, open and it's not without limitation. Uh, the question here, if you close the uh, groceries, for instance, or the shops of the people, just you can uh, imagine how it affected people's life and economic life, for instance. And here you are speaking about maybe 680 different shops, you know, in the old city. If national security isn't the issue, I asked, what are the settlers' goals? I think the main uh, plan behind that is uh, to evacuate uh, the old city and to connect between all of the uh, settlers or settlements inside uh, Hebron city to make a connection between that and to evacuate to push a Palestinian outside to become completely and purely you know as a, a Jewish place that's uh, the plan behind that Ronnie Perlman agrees She's a leader of the Israeli peace group Checkpoint Watch. She says there's a long history to such tactics going back before the founding of Israel. 
before 1948, the Zionists built the kibbutzim. They were always built in some way which would give the best protection to Israel. And they called it the wall and the tower. And it's the same thing. The idea is to cut up the Palestinian territories into little cantons so they can't communicate and can't do anything. The divide-and-conquer tactics used by Hebron settlers parallels efforts elsewhere in the West Bank. The Israeli government has established settlements in key areas of the West Bank and then connected them with modern highways accessible only to Israelis. Palestinians are not allowed to cross these roads, even on foot, except through military checkpoints. So a farmer with a house on one side and his farmland on the other is completely dependent on the Israeli army to get to work that day. When Israeli leaders discuss a possible peace agreement, they always insist that at least some major settlements and their access roads remain inside Israeli territory. Today, nearly 300,000 Israelis live in the West Bank. The settlements constitute impenetrable barriers to a viable Palestinian state. First of all, this was the idea. Yair Stern is a prominent conservative and former journalist living in Jerusalem. He recalls tactics developed by Ariel Sharon, a former general and later prime minister of Israel. Ariel Sharon, who masterminded the whole uh, settlement movement, exactly put the settlements in a way that they will crisscross the West Bank so that in the future uh, it won't be possible to, to have a an independent Palestinian state there, or, or it would be very difficult to do it. What are the views of the Hebron settlers on this issue? In a moment, we'll return to Hebron. More after this. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information, or for CD copies of this program, please call 800 800- This show is distributed for free to radio stations. We count on donations from listeners like you. To find out how to support us, download our shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org. Back at the Jewish settlement in Hebron, spokesperson David Wilder sits in his cramped office, piled high with papers and maps. I pointed out that settlers here and throughout the West Bank face a big problem. How can they ever live normal lives surrounded by hostile Palestinians? There's tremendous hostility against Jews, not only in Hebron. Uh, The entire state of Israel is surrounded by Arab countries. There are, I think, about a half a billion Arabs in 22 states that surround us that don't want us here. They don't want us here any more than in in Israel, any more than the Arabs want us here in in, in Hebron. I try to follow his logic. If all Palestinians are forever hostile to the settlers, what should happen to the two and a half million of them living in the West Bank? There aren't a lot of choices. Israel could allow Palestinians full citizenship, including the right to vote, but that democratic option would soon mean that Palestinians would be outvoting Jews in elections. That's not acceptable to the settlers. Many of the radical right-wing settlers want to expel Palestinians and force them to live in neighboring countries. It's euphemistically called transfer of populations. 
David Wilder doesn't use that term, but he comes at the question from a different angle. He argues that since Jews have been expelled from Arab land, turnabout is fair play. If I talk about uh, transferring Arabs, then that's called racism. When they talk about expelling me, that's considered a move in the right direction for peace, okay? Um, and I don't buy that. If it's legitimate to talk about expelling people, then again, it's not a one-way street, it's a two-way street. And what about those Palestinians, known as Israeli Arabs, who have lived as citizens inside Israel since 1948? Wilder says the Israeli government should take away their right to vote as well. Politically speaking, do I believe that... Uh, that Arabs should sit in the Israeli Knesset? No, I don't. I know that that sounds racist, fascist, I don't know, call it whatever you will. I, I think that it's absurd that uh, a, an Islamic Arab is going to try to uh, deal with who is a Jew. Democracy is a, is a wonderful, wonderful tool. I believe that democracy is a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. And if that democracy is going to bring about your own self-destruction, then it's forbidden to use it. One has to survive. On these issues, Wilder occupies the far-right nationalist wing of the Israeli political spectrum. Danny Dayan leads a larger and less strident group of settlers called Yesha Council. He disagrees with Wilder on the issue of removing voting rights for Israeli Arabs, but they find common ground in hoping that Palestinians will leave the West Bank and Gaza. Dayan couches the desire for transfer of populations more diplomatically by hoping that someday Jordan will become a democracy and Palestinians will voluntarily immigrate there. Jordan is a country with a predominant Palestinian majority and I assume that such a change will open a, a new horizons, will open a, a whole new range of solutions that I, not, I don't know their specifics. But so Palestinians uh, might want to leave to go to the... I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there uh, will be possible to achieve some sort of functional arrangement between Israel and the regime that will prevail then in, in, in the other bank of the Jordan. Of course, that was the solution proposed by Israeli leaders for many years prior to the 1991 Oslo Accords. In fact... Palestinians are a distinct people with their own history and would not voluntarily abandon their homeland and leave for Jordan. A few Palestinians and their supporters in the U.S. say that Israel will never accept a two-state solution in which the two communities live side by side in peace. They prefer a single binational state in which both people live together democratically. Human rights leader Jabarin says Palestinians overwhelmingly prefer the two-state solution. Palestinians, they accept the realistic one. Uh, they are ready to accept, you know, the division of Palestine and to accept, you know, 22% of Palestine. But the Israelis, they are not willing yet to accept that. In the near future, I have no hope. For a mid and long term, not just a hope, I do believe that we will build a peace in this area. But the question is, why we have to pay this high price? until we reach that point, because no other choice. The Israelis, they can't kill all Palestinians, and the Palestinians, they can't kill all Israelis.
The settlement issue is critical to resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So where does the Obama administration stand? President Obama initially took a forceful position, calling for a settlement freeze as a precondition for restarting negotiations. That view encouraged both progressive Israelis and Palestinians, as we can hear during random interviews on the streets of the West Bank city of Ramallah. Ferris Bader, age 19, is a college student studying business. Hopefully Obama's policy will benefit the Palestinian people and uh, he's hoping that the decisions and speeches he gave uh, be before that he, he, would, he will implement them at some stage. I do respect Mr. Obama um, as a black person who suffered as us uh, Palestinians, uh, but also understand that he's under pressure. On the same street, I met Maj Batashi, who works at the NGO, the Palestinian Center for Peace and Democracy. She explains that many Palestinians look favorably on Obama, particularly in comparison with George Bush. Yeah, of course, they would see like this African person who came to be to help the Palestinians because he would feel with us. Oh my God, his father he might be Muslim. I don't know, like all these things. He speaks from. He, he mentioned some uh, words from Quran. We will clap for him. Everyone said he. He said like uh, we should uh, build our relation on respect. I should talk to Arabs. I should talk to Muslims. I should talk to Iran. And now he's a Nobel Prize winner. That's amazing, wonderful. So of course, like you know, people just look on the surface. They don't look inside. But in October 2009, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton backed down on the issue of a settlement freeze and announced a new Obama administration position that would allow further settlement expansion. I was not like the other Palestinians or Arabs who, who went to the street dancing for Obama and clapping and say Obama is going to save the Palestinians and going to, to achieve the justice because I was convinced from the beginning that Obama is, a, is just a person stuck in a system of the U.S. system that he's, he can't change in one day. And uh, I'm really disappointed because uh, for a little bit I, I, I thought that there, were, there won't be like uh, a worse person than George Bush. And I thought that uh, Obama will be a good person that uh, will at least try to do what he promised the Palestinians and the Arabs in general. He needs the Arab to help him in, in his war in Iraq, in Afghanistan, here and there, to talk to Iran, whatever. But to help Palestinians, it's impossible. The Zionist lobby is very, very strong in, 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 in the U.S. And we can easily see that on what happened from the U.S. Uh, position and opinion on, on freezing the settlements. And the smallest thing that we expected is to freeze the settlements. He's not even doing that or not even putting pressure on Israel. Palestinians have gone from liking Obama to distrusting him. However, conservative Israelis have drawn the opposite conclusions. Here in the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem's old city, Yuri Shevach runs a small tourist shop. Most of the president before him used to support Israel. He is the objective, he see what's good for USA. He wants to get close to the Arab nation. Part of it he sacrifices a, a lot of a friend of a USA. I mean, uh, if you want the Palestinians to like him, uh, then uh, uh, he needs to uh, put more pressure on us or something. But still, uh, even though I think he, from all the countries, uh, from all the leaders in the countries, he's still our best friend, not as Bush, but compared to the European and all this, that we see that they want us to destroy, he supports us. 
Shemach fully supports the Obama administration's decision to allow settlement expansion. There is a change in U.S. policy, and since then I see that uh, Obama even uh, even uh, is not great supporter, but he's a friend. You understand? It's easier for uh, Israel to negotiate with the Palestinians now because they see that they don't want side. Uh, While conservative Israelis welcome the changes in U.S. policy, progressives have been surprised and disappointed. Checkpoint Watch leader and peace activist Ronnie Perlman. There was genuine, genuine excitement when Obama was elected. Everybody watched the inauguration. They showed it in cafes and everybody thought that it's wonderful that the time has come in the United States that a black president was elected. I think that actually most people thought that Bush was good for Israel because he, liked, he genuinely liked us. And there was kind of a wary feeling about Obama, but we know that uh, probably nothing dramatic will happen. What's your opinion, personally, of what he's done so far? I expected pressure in areas where it's doable. You know, I didn't expect Obama to come in and say, don't have the Canton plan. But I thought that he will support the Israeli government to act where the government itself said that they should act. So I'm, uh, I'm surprised. Perlman notes that enforcing the settlement freeze is consistent with previous international agreements and quite doable. Past Israeli governments have removed settlers from illegal dwellings and received support from the majority of Israelis. I'm really surprised because I think it's even possible for the Israeli government to throw out a hundred people out of illegal settlements. That that could be such a confidence-building step towards uh, a peace process uh, or peace process negotiations that I'm surprised that uh, it hasn't been done. Both progressive Israelis and Palestinians concede that the right wing is ascendant in Israel at the moment, and the short-term prospects for peace look dim. But a combination of reinvigorated movements in Israel and Palestine, combined with targeted pressure from the U.S., could improve the chances for peace. In Hebron, the West Bank, Omri Sirach. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. This program was written and produced by Reese Ehrlich. His new book, Conversations with Terrorists, will be in bookstores in September 2010. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736. Or you can get our podcast at radioproject.org. You can also make a donation at our website. Most of our funding comes from listeners like you. Lisa Redman is our executive director, Pauline Bartoloni, producer and online editor, Andrew Stelzer, producer, Con Pham, associate director, Megan Martenyi, our media consortium intern, and Rita Daniels and Lakeisha Thomas interns. And I'm Tina Rubio. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. So that was our, our Making Contact program on Settlers or Meddlers, a Divided Palestine uh, and um, a program that they uh, produced at the end of last year, but focusing on the uh, issue of settlements in the West Bank. Um, today, of course, the news is about the uh, Gaza Strip, um, where the um, flotilla that was trying to get there 
was attacked by Israeli forces, and maybe nine people, maybe、uh, more, were killed.、Um, the、uh, women's group that、um, has formed against the wars in Afghanistan and um, and uh, Iraq have、uh, issued a statement and have a petition online to get Obama moving. As you can, see, as you heard,、uh, Obama's、uh, position on the settlements has wavered, and also、um, on this particular issue, he just cancelled a meeting with、uh, Benjamin Netanyahu on、uh, the Israeli Prime Minister. But he didn't really. He said he regretted the loss of life, but he didn't condemn the attack. And so the Code Pink group has、uh, set up a petition today online.、Um, That uh, asked um, Obama to get acting on this issue.、Um, here's Code Pink's、uh, statement: We are outraged, stunned, and broken-hearted that the Israeli Navy has not only intercepted six ships that were carrying humanitarian aid to the 1.5 million people in Gaza who are living under an Israeli-imposed siege, but has actually killed and wounded dozens of these. Uh, brave humanitarian activists, while Israel has refused to release the pre- precise、um, the precise、uh, details, news reports are saying that at least nine people were killed, many more wounded, and that the remaining seven hundred passengers have been sent to Israel for arrest and/or deportation. The storming of the of civilian ships in international waters by Islam Israeli、uh, commandos is a terrorist act that is an a blatant、uh, violation of international law, says this Code Pink uh, um, statement.、Uh, this must be a turning point for U.S. policy toward Israel. The reaction of the Obama administration to Israel's attack on humanitarian on the humanitarian aid flotilla. Which includes U.S. citizens has been totally unacceptable. A White House spokesperson said that President Obama deeply regrets the loss of life and injuries sustained. We need to hear from the pres our president and our Congress a strong condemnation of this、uh, abominable act attack, and it must be accompanied by action,、uh, an immediate cut off of all aid to Israel, and sustained pressure on Israel. To lift the siege of Gaza, the U.S. government has been complicit in arming Israel and enabling its human rights abuses, including the ongoing siege of Gaza that has kept 1.5 million people living in the world's largest open-air prison. In July 2008, the United States signed a contract worth 1.9 billion to transfer the latest generation of naval combat vessels. To Israel, at U.S. taxpayer expense. Currently, Congress is in the process of appropriating a record 3.2 billion in military aid to Israel this budget year. This aid must be stopped, says this Code Pink、um, statement. Israel has imposed a crippling blockade on Gaza since 2007, and then the brutal Israeli invasion of Gaza in December 2009 left over 1,400 Palestinians dead. Code Pink has been sending delegations of humanitarian aid to Gaza via Egypt and pressuring the U.S. government to call on Israel to lift the siege in light of this present massacre of humanitarian workers. We vowed to double our efforts 
to lift the inhumane siege of Gaza and change U.S. policy to support the rights of all people in the region, says the statement. We need to, we need our leaders to show their commitment to peace by condemning this act, uh, launching an immediate inquiry, calling on Israel to lift the siege of Gaza and supporting an immediate halt to arms supplies uh, for Israel, says Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, who has traveled four times to Gaza. We are calling on peace-loving people everywhere to organize protests in your communities against Israel's attack on the humanitarian flotilla, call for the aid workers to be released and allowed to, and allowed to compete, complete their humanitarian mission, find events near you and post your details, uh, your event details on the Code Pink site. Uh, for people in the U.S., contact the White House. It asks people to contact the White House and um, and um, congressional representatives, and it asks that people should condemn that uh, condemn Israel, asking them to condemn, asking the representatives to condemn Israel, cut off all U.S. aid, and learn to learn about, and then to learn about the deadly impact of the U.S. military aid to Israel. You can click on us link on this website from Code Pink and demand that Israel lift the siege of Gaza. And on the same, uh, uh, next to the press release, there is a, on the homepage of, uh, of the uh, Code Pink, there's a uh, link to a petition, uh, uh, sign our petition. Uh, there's a link there. Uh, and the petition uh, has a statement uh, addressed to President Obama. We are calling on you to join other Nobel Prize laureates in condemning the killing of the international humanitarian activists taking, um, taking much-needed humanitarian aid to Gaza. Your statement so far expressing regret is positive but insufficient. We urge you to immediately condemn the assault and halt all aid to Israel while you examine how U.S. military aid has contributed to this and other human rights abuses. It is time to show th- true leadership by upholding the values of human rights and international law. So that's the statement from Code Pink, and you can find this at the Code Pink uh, website. Uh, which is codepinkalert.org. HTTP www.codepinkalert.org. Um, Code Pink is this woman for peace group that um, is now very active in also bringing aid to the Gaza Strip. Um, so that's what's been happening uh, as we do our show. And... Um, we will continue this next week to cover this um, online and also uh, in our next show coming up in a week on Monday. Uh, and uh, the news coverage, of course, is very bad for Israel. Uh, even within Israel, there have been uh, protests, uh, demonstrations, and uh, the um, the the attack has been. Uh, totally um, criticized 
worldwide. And um, eventually, we believe that good will come out of the today's tragic events. I think more people will know about this uh, tragedy in the Gaza, and um, more people will be uh, uh, aroused, I believe. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, we're going to bring you another program from um, Making Contact, and this is a short, uh, we'll bring you a beginning of a clip uh, talking about the U.S. Social Forum that for the, first, for the second time will be in the U.S., and this will be held in June, I believe, in um, uh, in Detroit, actually. The the social forum, uh, the U.S. social forum will be held in Detroit. Um, and we'll bring you a short clip about that. Stay tuned. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This week on Making Contact. Like you really don't realize how much power you have, like how much power your voice has until you actually get out there and do something. Self-expression is a powerful tool and a healthy method to dealing with everyday challenges we face in our life. Art is everywhere, from ancient cave paintings... We'll be uh, bringing you that Detroit uh, program in a second here. So um, this is um, this is on the social forum. Government accountable. This June, the second ever U.S. social forum will be held in Detroit, Michigan. We need a vision for a new economy and a new society. And we need to work to build the movement it's going to take in order to bring about that kind of transformative change. Activists from all over the country will be coming together to brainstorm about how to unite their movements and how to respond to the problems of 2010. Detroit's 30 plus years into an economic crisis. The environmental and economic struggle is very real here and the solutions are very real here. On this edition, the U.S. Social Forum and the Road to Detroit. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. If another world is possible, another United States is necessary. That was the challenge issued to U.S.-based activists by the World Social Forum. It's been three years since the first U.S. Social Forum in Atlanta, Organizers are just starting to see some of the long-term possibilities. Key to the forum's success is whether it can help unite local campaigns and create a large, coordinated national social justice movement. One group that's been taking that step is domestic workers, folks who work in people's homes, cooking and cleaning, or caring for the children and the elderly. Largely an immigrant workforce, these are some of the most disempowered and disenfranchised workers in the U.S. But thanks to the U.S. Social Forum, in 2007, they formed a new National Domestic Workers Alliance, calling for some basic rights many of us take for granted. We take care of your children. We take them to school, to French classes. We clean your homes. 
do your laundry, and we care for your aging parents right here in this neighborhood. Yes, we do. Tell us. On Manhattan's wealthy Upper East Side, dozens of nannies are marching and carrying signs to call attention to the fact that they are the undervalued backbone of New York City. Usually, we are here working long, long, long hours, from dawn until late, pushing strollers and wheelchairs, carrying grocery bags, some of the groceries that we can't even take a slice of bread when we are hungry, working so hard in your house. Housekeepers, cooks, and nannies are just a few of the domestic jobs that aren't covered under most federal workplace laws. They don't get overtime, sick days, or holidays. They also aren't permitted to organize unions. When labor laws were being written in the 1930s, Southern members of Congress wouldn't support the legislation unless they excluded the jobs which were primarily done by African Americans, agricultural work and domestic work around the house. In many ways, says one worker, things haven't changed much in over 70 years. In six and a half years, I have never had a raise or a bonus. When I would ask for these things, the verbal abuse would start. But it's hard when you have bills to pay and a family depending on you. That's Pat Francois. She's a member of Domestic Workers United in New York. He crossed the line when he hit me. I'm seeking justice for what I experience. I'm here with you, discussing, passing the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. Francois is talking about the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. It's become a cornerstone of a campaign in New York State. Since 2004, activists have been pushing for a bill that would guarantee some basic rights, including overtime, sick days and holidays, protection from discrimination, and advance notice if they're going to be fired. It's come close to passing several times, but never made it all the way to the governor's desk. Then, in 2007, the mobilization was brought to a new level when domestic worker activists traveled from six cities to Atlanta for the first-ever U.S. Social Forum. Donahi Lona was one of them. She came from San Francisco with the Women Workers Project, an initiative of an organization called People Organized to Win Employment Rights, or POWER. After a few days brainstorming and getting to know each other, Lona says she and her counterparts from around the country realized their strength in numbers. Each of these organizations were types of islands unto themselves. Um, everyone was doing their work independently of each other. We knew of each other's work, but um, this was an opportunity at the social forum to build relationships with each other and do some joint work together to advance our common goals. By the end of the forum, a movement had begun to take shape as Ai-Jen Poo, the co-founder of Domestic Workers United, took to the stage. Our central purpose is to figure out how we build the power of our sector in the context of and in a way that builds the broader social justice movement here in the U.S. And I have a special announcement to make. Are you ready? Today, June 30th, 2007, we voted to form a national alliance of domestic workers. 
Since then, domestic workers around the country have been holding regional gatherings and speaking on conference calls. Using that network and taking their cue from their newfound partners in New York, domestic workers in California have been pushing for their own Bill of Rights. The California legislation contains ten demands, including the right to five hours of uninterrupted sleep, coverage by the state if they're injured on the job, three weeks' notice if a worker is going to be fired, sick days, and paid vacation. Beatriz Herrera, an organizer at Power, says that a lot of what the bill is asking for is a standard that can be applied to all workers. A lot of people who employ domestic workers are actually nice, kind, honest people, and they you know, have taken their workers as a member of their family and actually treat them very well. But they don't have a concept of what's fair for this worker. Because the domestic worker industry has almost no labor protection, it's almost like people have a right to exploit as much as they can all of their workers. Proponents say a veto by Governor Schwarzenegger is likely, so they're pushing for a resolution in support of the Bill of Rights to be passed by the state legislature. They hope the Bill of Rights itself can be passed and signed by the new governor in 2011. Power is planning to bring at least a dozen members to the 2010 Social Forum. The National Domestic Workers Alliance will be holding a Congress there, and is also hoping to build bonds with other workers who are excluded from labor laws, like farm workers and day laborers. So that was uh, a segment from our Making Contact program on the U.S. Social Forum that's going to happen this coming month in June, actually, starting tomorrow, uh, but later in the month in Detroit. And earlier we talked about Gaza and the... uh, terrible stuff that's going on uh, in the flotilla that's going to Gaza. This is Dan Zhang signing off for this edition of Subversity here. Uh, stay tuned on for KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.